Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for tuning in. Our desire is to unleash a family of healthy disciple makers in Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. Well, if you are a guest here, I want to say welcome to Disciple City Church. My name is Jerry Wagner. I am one of the pastors, the lead pastor here at Disciple City Church. And you have the awesome opportunity to kind of merge in on a sermon series that we have been preaching here at Disciple City Church called Follow Me. In fact, we have a mantra that we use around here. It says disciples in the know, disciples and disciples are, right? When you read the book of Mark, you are beginning to see what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But now we have reached the climactic moment of the book. This is the center of the book where not only do you get to understand what it means to follow Jesus, but now you get a chance to see what it means to commit and surrender your life to him forever. So I am going to pray, and then I'm going to jump into this text. Eternal Father, have your way in this place today. Father, we pray that your word will go forth in such a way that men, women, boys, and girls may ask that all-important question, what must I do to be saved? And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and glory which you are due. It's in Jesus Christ's name that I pray. Let all the saints say, amen. amen. Well, most of you all know that um, I was an athlete growing up. And one thing about being an athlete is that you always need equipment. Well, one day I went to my mom and I asked her for some new shoes. Mom, I, I need some new shoes, right? Now, she was dating this guy at the time who had a really good job, right? I'm from Ohio, so if you work at any factory in Ohio, you're getting paid like $20, $25 an hour at the time. So she was dating this guy, and he was playing the role of a stepdad or a bonus dad, whatever y'all call them these days, right? So I'm excited about the possibility of the shoes that I can get. Mama. I need some shoes. Well, unbeknownst to me, my mom went to go get me and my brother some shoes. And when she walked in the house with this, these shoes, me and my brothers went berserk. Oh man, <laughs> we got some new shoes. But there was something wrong because the shoes that came in the house was not in a box. They were in a bag. I was like, oh, something ain't right here. Well, my mom began to take the shoes out of the bag, these loose shoes, and she began to show us, hey, baby, these are the shoes that mama has bought you. These shoes were held together by a zip tie. I'm hot. 
I'm like, no, she did. She bought me what we call in Dayton, Ohio, Jeepers, off-brand shoes. They, they look like Converse Chuck Taylors, but they didn't have no logo or branding on it at all. And I'm hot. I'm like, and I, under my breath, I got a black mom, so don't, don't judge her. <laughs> I said, man, I ain't wearing those jeepers. My mama said, what did you just say? I said, mama, I was singing a song, Puff the Magic Dragon. I, I was singing a song. Now notice something. I got what I wanted, but I did not want what I got. Here's why that's important. I'm not saying today that Jesus is out here offering off-brand shoes. But what I am saying is that what Jesus is offering, oftentimes we don't want. I'm, I'm not saying that Jesus is giving you some secondhand shoes, but anytime Jesus begins to offer us something, oftentimes we're like, I don't want that. Let me see if I can prove my point. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, we don't want that. Although the cross of Jesus is lighter than the crosses that we are carrying. When Jesus says, forgive those who hurt you, we don't want to do that. Because we think the person who hurts us, if we forgive them, they are going to get away with the pain. Although God himself has forgiven you more than the person who has offended you. In fact, we don't want Jesus when he says, forgive or love your enemy. And the reason why we don't want to hold to that reality is if we were to love our enemy like Jesus loved us, there's no justice there. Why are we devaluing the things that Jesus offered to us? I got three reasons. The first is instant gratification. The reason why we devalue the things that Jesus offered to us is because it don't come quick enough, right? Like we don't get the gratification that we really want and really need at that time. Like it's easier to microwave food than to cook it, although the health benefits don't even compare. The reason why we devalue the things of Jesus is because the gratification is too slow. Here's the second reason. is because what the world offers, we think is better than what Jesus offers. Isn't that what I was doing? See, the reason why I didn't want those jeepers, those zip tie shoes, is because culture teaches that fashion is based on branding, not the functionality of shoes. That's what we do. We allow the culture to dictate what is valuable and what is devalued. I remember saying to my mom, I, I buy my own shoes. And she was like, if you buy your own shoes, you need to get a job. I said, cool. That day, I got a paper out. And I still couldn't afford the shoes that I really wanted. <laughs> right? I'm like, mom, I need some help. Can you help me out? Can you put some money with what I got? She's like, nah, get your own shoes. I did eventually, but I was 30 when I finally got some Jordans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the world constantly is telling us what's value. And here's the last one. Self 
self-interest. Our self-interest is in constant contrast and in opposition to the will of God. I'm going to prove that today in the book of Mark. Our self-interest is the thing that causes our desires to outweigh the desires of Jesus. So the question that I want to ask and answer today is simply this. What do you want from Jesus? What do you want from Jesus? But here's the real question, though. But are you willing to accept what he has to offer? It's one thing to say, Jesus, this is what I want. This is what I need. But when Jesus turns and offers to you the things that he calls good, the question that you and I wrestle with on a daily basis is, but am I willing to accept this? Is this valuable enough? Does it meet my standards? So here's what I want, I hope that you walk away with today. First, I hope that you walk away with the understanding that Jesus has something to offer. But oftentimes what he offers is in contrast to our desires. And then Jesus is going to call you to another level of what it means to follow him through servitude. And then lastly, I'm going to answer the question, how do I accept the offering of Jesus? You ready to dig into this? First thing, Jesus offers life through suffering. I've already lost this side of the room as soon as I said suffering. <laughs> they like, I, I didn't come to this church on Easter to hear about suffering. Jesus offers suffering, life through suffering. This is the final lesson that Jesus is about to teach his disciples. Because what we have learned over these past couple of weeks is that the road of Jerusalem is death. That the road of Jerusalem is opposition. It is the very place where Jesus will be crucified. In the words of the great movie prophet Tom Hanks, Jerusalem is the Green Mile. Only two people saw that movie? <laughs> two? Go watch the Green Mile, it's good. John Coffee is spelled with two Fs, uh, two E's, not one, all right? But this is the Green Mile. Jesus is walking to his death. Twice he has predicted to his disciples that he is going to die. And not only are the disciples starting to feel this weight, even the crowd, the ones who have been astonished and amazed by him, are starting to feel this tension. But notice something. Notice the posture of Jesus and the racing pulse of the disciples and all those who are following him in verse 32. As the text says, they were on the road to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Notice Jesus' posture. Once again, he's leading out in front. Once again, he is the one who is modeling what it means to follow him. The text continues to say, the disciples were astonished, but those who follow him was afraid. 
Jesus is walking as one with resolve. Jesus is walking as one who is calm. Jesus is walking as one who knows he is about to suffer, who knows he is about to die, and yet he is resolved and strong in his posture. Man, that is the gangsterest stuff I've ever read in my life. Somebody told me that Hood Friday is better than Good Friday. I said, how? Because on Good Friday, this dude walks to his death, looks his captures in their eye, and then on the third day he gets up? How's that more gangster than Good Friday, right? And so when I see this, I'm looking, I'm like, man, Jesus is a gangster. He probably needed a teardrop on his eye. <laughs> but that's not true. But the reason, the reality is Jesus is resolved. But the disciples and the followers, they are confused, they are anxious, and they are afraid. Why? Why is their emotions all over the place? And I can only imagine that they are asking this one question. Who would voluntarily take himself to a place of danger and death? Like, who does that? If you know that you are about to be punched, why stand in the way? Dodge that thing. If you know that you are about to be sabotaged by someone, why go to that place? And I can only imagine that the disciples and the followers are asking, who volunteers for this? Which is the answer to the question that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. And the reason why that's important for us to understand is this. Jesus is willing to go to the cross for you and me. Another gangster moment in Jesus writing, Jesus says, you don't take my life. I give it. You don't have the authority on earth to take my life, but I am willing like a sheep to the slaughter to give myself for you. And every time I think about what Jesus is willing to do, scratch that, what the father was willing to do to give his only son so that we might have life and have it more abundantly, I cannot fathom that reality. I love Disciple City Church, Claire, but I ain't giving none of, none of my children up for y'all. I'm telling y'all that now. I got five of them too. The moment you be like, Pastor, can you make this the same? I'm like, nah, bro, I'm going to pray for you, but I can't help you out. But here's the beautiful thing. I don't have to make that choice because the Father in heaven already did. I don't have to make that decision because the Father in heaven was willing to give his son and his son was willing to go to the cross. For the final time, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. Look at verses 32 through 34. He pulls them to the side. And for the third time, he's about to tell them, I am going to die. And this is what he says. He begins to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem. Notice the transition right there. 
He goes from what is about to happen to him to what is about to happen to us. That anyone who desires to follow Jesus must understand that you are walking the green mile. That you are walking to your death. You are walking to a life of suffering. You are walking through a life of rejection by the world. Jesus says, I have something to offer, but what I am offering to you is life, but that life is connected to suffering. Here's the second thing he says. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will be condemned to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, but he will rise three days later again. Notice that there are eight verbs there. And not only is it eight verbs, there are eight future verbs in this text that he will be handed over, that he will be condemned, that he will be handed over, that he will be mocked, that he will be spat on, that he will be flogged, and he will be killed, and he will, three days later, rise again. Why do I point those verbs out to you? The first reason I point those verbs out is because When Jesus begins to predict his death, he is showing off both his power and his authority. Right? Like the reason why Jesus is showing you, I know what these cats are about to do. He is posturing himself to show you I'm in control. (laughs) Jesus is like, I'm in control of this. I have this handled. You cannot sneak up on me. I told you he's gangster. Like most of y'all go leave this place today and like I don't remember nothing pastor said, but I do know Jesus is gangster. (laughs) Right? He's willing to give his life and he's demonstrating his power and his authority. Here's the second thing you need to know based on these eight verbs. That he will rise from the dead. Here's what... Here's the reason why this is important. He says, in order for me to get to the resurrection, I must first go through suffering. And in order for me to be raised from the dead, the first thing that I must go through is pain and death. Jesus is offering life through suffering. And here's the problem. This is the place where we tap out. This is the place where we're like, I'm not signing up for that. Hey, has anyone ever came to Jesus and now you are a follower of Jesus and then you started reading your Bible and you begin to, to, to understand that your life is about death and suffering? Don't you want to go back to the person who shared the gospel with you and be like, hey, bro, I didn't sign up for that. You said the gospel was good news. You said it was about grace and love. How do I have to go through suffering to get to life? So when I look at that, it begins to cause me to understand who we are as humans. We know we need life, but we don't want the suffering that's attached to it. 
We know we need to be delivered from our bondage. But we don't want the pain that's associated with it. We want to fast forward through life and show up like a magician and say, Tada, I have arrived. I think about those shoes and that story. I share it with you in the beginning. And one of the things that my mom used to always do is make sure that me and my brothers were provided for, even though she wasn't. My mother would come to school with holes in her shoes or uh, raggedy clothes, but she made sure her sons looked good. See, what my mom had was this understanding that I care more about my children and I'm willing to go through ridicule so that they might look good. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Jesus was willing to go through the pain of life so that we might have life, so that we might be reconciled to the Father, so that we might have the opportunity to stand before God and say, God, the only reason I'm able to come into heaven is because of what your son did 2,000 years ago. But we don't want suffering. We just want life. Can I prove this point to you? What we want is glory without suffering. Go to verses 35 through 47. This is what the text says. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask for. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answer him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. Notice this. Jesus has just told you all the things that he is about to go through. And the first thing that the disciples did was, hey, can you do something for me? Hey, can you do something for us? Not only does this show pride, not only does this show a lack of humility, but it's almost like they didn't hear nothing but the resurrection. I'm going to prove that point in a second, right? Like they don't even listen to what Jesus has to say. All they are thinking about is their position in heaven. This is a power move. This is a platform move. They are seeking what is best for them, although their savior is about to be killed. See, they want elevation, not salvation. They want the setup without the suffering. James and John are those disciples who have had the opportunity of seeing the glory of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. And so because they have had this glimpse of his glory, they like, oh, man, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to die. The kingdom is coming. The revelation of God is coming. Hey, man, this is our opportunity. We want to be in glory with you. Now, the thing I love about Jesus is that even in our selfish moments, he shows grace towards us. Even in the moments when we are just thinking about ourselves and our own self-interest, Jesus is gracious to us. Notice, Jesus did not rebuke them. 
Why? It is because the issue is not the request. The issue is the contrast between what Jesus wants and what they want. The issue is not honor. The issue is not the reward of the kingdom. Jesus says, I'm all about that life. The issue is that they are willing to bypass suffering on earth to get the reward of the king. I don't know if you've ever been through that where somebody don't really want you, but they want your stuff. I don't know if you've ever been through that in a relationship when they want all the benefits that you can offer, but they don't want any of the sacrifice and the commitment. I see some of the ladies like, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, uh (laughs) uh-huh, right? This is what the disciples are doing to Jesus. They want all the benefits of the Messiah, but they don't want the life that he brings. Let me dig deeper in this contrast of interests. Pastor Ryan pointed this out last week, and I I just want to show it to you in the text. See, the contrast of interest is when we get to a point where we begin to negotiate with Jesus. When we begin to tell Jesus, I know what you said in your word, but this is what I want. Let me see if I can show you. If you can bring that up on the screen. There is this Greek word, hada, and this is what Pastor Ryan talked about last week. And this Greek word is trying to show you that what Jesus has in mind is in contrast to what the disciples have in mind. And I want to read it quickly. In verse 36, uh, 36, it says, but he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, but they answered, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. The word allow here means self-interest. In fact, they didn't even ask him to do something. They actually commanded it. They literally said to him, hey, whatever we're going to ask, you got to do. Like, you can't get out of there. Anybody ever set you up like that? Like, I'm going to ask you something, but you can't say no. Are you going to do it? I'm like, you ain't asked me yet. Uh, no, but you got to do it. We free. We've been friends for 20 years. You can trust me. I'm like, look, I told you I ain't giving up my kids for nobody, brother. Secondly, he says, but Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I baptize with? Are you able to be overwhelmed with the choices that I'm making? They said, but again, but they said, we are able. How prideful, right? How prideful. Yeah, now we, we, we can handle it, Jesus. Then Jesus says them, you will drink the cup. And you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left hand is not mine to give. Notice the contrast. Jesus is saying to walk with me is about a life of sacrifice. To walk with me is about a life of death. To walk with me is to be willing to lay down your life for others. All they're thinking about is fame. 
All they're thinking about is the, the, the reality that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to crush the Roman Empire. He's going to deliver us from our oppressors. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm doing. In fact, one of the things I like about this text is that not only are, is Jesus saying we're not on the right path, but remember in some of you have story Bibles. When you look in the story Bibles and you see Jesus in the center of the cross, what do you see to the right of him? A thief. What do you see to the left of him? A thief. Jesus says, if you want to walk with me, if you want to have a position on my left and right, is suffering. It's crucifixion. Now, there's already people who have taken that mantle, but if you really want that, just look at the cross. Suffering on my right, suffering on my left, and the only person that's innocent who can bear this cup is the one who's in the middle. I love this. Why are we not receiving the things that we ask from Jesus? Who better to ask, answer this question than John? John, in, first, um, in his first letter, in chapter 5, verse 14, listen to these words. He says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what he will ask of us. Notice that the reason why we are not receiving the things when, when we ask Jesus is because our self-interests are not aligned. The text literally says that if you ask according to his will, then he will freely give. Just look at your prayer life. When you fall on your knees, the first thing you do is ask Jesus for what you want. The first thing I do when I pray is a petition. I want Jesus to do something for me. And sooner or later, we got to get to the realization that when we fall on our knees before Jesus, we must start with, Lord, how can I serve you today? Father, what do you have? What is your plans? My wife, man, teaches me this lesson all the time. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. But she teaches me this lesson all the time. I'd be like, baby, can you do? Baby, can you do? Baby, can you do? And one day she was like, you know, your vocabulary is filled with a lot of do's. Don't you know this? She says, in the moment I ask you to do something, you take your precious time before you do it. I love you, baby. And it hit me one day. She's right. More often than not, I neglect the love that my wife shares. More often than not, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about my own self-interest and not the self-interest of my family. So now when she tells me to do something, it may take me five minutes, but I'm getting there quicker. I'm getting there much quicker to some of the things that she is asking why do we avoid suffering, although it leads to life? 
Right? Why do we avoid the very thing that Jesus says that this is a part of life? And there's two answers to this question. The first reason is we culturally think that suffering is abuse. Right? To suffer is to be abused. To suffer means that someone is taking advantage of me. Here's the second reason. Because our self-interest always outweigh the desires of the king. The reason why we're constantly avoiding is because the culture has told you that, man, to suffer is abuse. To suffer means you don't have faith. To suffer means that there's something wrong with you. Or it's just simply your self-interest. Let me see if I can prove this point to you. Jesus calls us to serve others through suffering. Jesus calls us to serve others through suffering. In fact, this is the biblical model of true greatness. True greatness in the kingdom of God is that we are willing to serve others. True greatness in the kingdom of God is to lay down your self-interest and to exalt the interest of the kingdom. That's what true greatness is. This call, I know, is a contrast, and it's a contrast to both our human nature, and it's also a contrast to our cultural values. To think that you and I have to do something for someone else before we think about ourselves. Nah, I ain't trying to do that. In fact, all you need is kids to prove this to you. The beautiful thing of me having a one-year-old is my daughter, she, she's a beautiful. She does, she got two phrases, two phrases that she liked to say. The first phrase is, sick it is. She's one. She's one. She, she would tell you in a minute, sick it is. I'm sick of this. I'm like, what? Who, who taught you this? She's sick it is, and she'll do this with her hands. Sick it is. <laughs> I'm t- all right. Watch, let her come here. She would tell you too. I'm sick of this. <laughs> and then the second thing that she do is stop. 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 As soon as you hear that, you know somebody is doing something, but she just goes around the house. Stop. I'm like, where did you learn these things? I'm not saying stop. I don't know if my wife, I know I didn't say sick of this. I don't know where she got that. <laughs> I'm like, where are you getting these things? Is a contrast to her very nature. Babies are territorial. And big babies, when they grow up, watch this, they are territorial too. So when Jesus calls us to serve others, that's suffering to our ears. That's suffering to our posture. That's suffering to our reality. Here's the other thing. Here's what Jesus is. Let me make sure I'm proving this. Jesus said, called them over, referring to the disciples, and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and those who are in high position acts as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. 
On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Notice Jesus takes the culture of his time and he makes a contrast. He says the Gentiles, they think to lord over someone is what it means to lead someone. He says those men who have power position, they think to be a tyrant over someone is what it means to be great. Now, before we as Americans here in the United States, look at this culture and be like, man, we don't live like that. Can I show you something real quick? Here's a study from an article in the New York Times, and it says this. The United States is notable for its individualism. The results of several large studies assessing the values held by the people of various nations consistently ranks the United States as the world's most individualistic country. Individualism as defined by the behavioral science means valuing autonomy, self-expression, and the pursuit of personal goals rather than prioritizing the interests of the group, be it family, community, or country, end of quote. That's our posture. We will rather prioritize us. We will rather prioritize what we think is right and what we think is valuable over the group. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself, but when it comes at the cost of others, we are moving outside of the kingdom of God. And I know, I hear, I hear the questions that is brewing in our hearts. How is Jesus able to demand such a posture of life? How is Christ able to demand that we live this life of servitude? And the answer to that question is in verse 45. He says, but it is not so. Um, he, he, says, he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Jesus says, the reason why I can ask you this is because I've already walked a mile in your shoes. The, the reason why I can a- ask you to live a life of servitude, although suffering follows it is because I was willing to give my life on your behalf. Jesus says, I've already done it. I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't done. I'm asking you to do something that will benefit benefit the entire world. Jesus says, I am offering life. Not only am I offering life, I'm offering eternal life. But just know that the life I am giving you is hitched to sacrifice, death, and your ability to lay down your life for other people. Is that something you're willing to accept? I told you. 
It's one thing for Jesus to offer up his life. It's one thing for us to stand on his stage and sing, he got up, he is risen. Oh, man, he, indeed he did. But if you don't take advantage of his life, then it's dead. My coach in football used to always say, there's no such thing as an opportunity unless you take advantage of it. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection means nothing to the person who says, no, thank you. Jesus' death, his burial and resurrection means nothing to a disciple who's not willing to give his life on behalf of the kingdom. There's too many followers of Jesus who come to church but ain't making disciples. There are too many followers of Jesus who who do religious things but are not willing to lay down their life for Jesus. But for some of us, somebody might be asking a question, Pastor, I I was willing to accept Jesus' offering before you even started talking. I didn't even know I was coming to this church today. I didn't even know I was watching this online. Tell me how. Tell me how do I accept the high cost of discipleship? Tell me how do I accept walking with Jesus? And I think the answer to this question is in the blind man's story. It's in the blind man's story. Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. And he is standing on the side of the road. He is the only person in the scripture that is named who has been healed by Jesus. And the reason why Mark wants you to understand that is because he is the first person who has been healed that Jesus is identifying as a disciple of Jesus. Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road. He's begging. And all of a sudden he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And this is what the text says. Jesus of Nazareth is coming and he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice his posture versus the posture of the disciples. The disciples says, we able to do it, Jesus. We able to drink of the cup. We're able to hold and be overwhelmed by the decisions you are making. That's not how Bartimaeus came. Bartimaeus came with a posture of mercy. Jesus, I need you. I need these shoes. I I need this life. Have mercy on me, son of David. The son of David is nothing more than a variation of the Messiah. Deliver me. Help me. Now, other people around him, the culture, begin to tell him, be quiet. Leave Jesus alone. It don't take that much to follow Jesus. But when you're in desperate need, you don't care what other people think. The text says he got louder. Son of David, please have mercy on me. See, one of the reasons why you are not receiving the things of Jesus because you ain't desperate enough. You ain't hungry enough. That's why oftentimes most of us have responded to Jesus in our darkest moments. Man, you know how I came to Jesus? I came to Jesus because my heart was broken by a girl in, um, in my junior year. This girl cheated on me, messed my whole world up. I was sleeping with my mama. Like, I was just messed up, man. I'm crying. 
I'm like, I don't want to look at another girl on this life. And I remember I got to a place of, of uh, not just depression, but suicide. I got to a place of suicide. First time I've ever shared this story, but a place of suicide. And I remember hearing this voice that says, I am the way. I had never read the Bible. I had never went to church like none of And it just said, I am the way. And it scared me so bad, I thought I was losing my mind. And imagine a year later, I opened up the Bible. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He's crying out to the Messiah saying, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. He said to them, call him. So they called the blind man and he said to them, have courage, get up. He's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? That's the second time that question was asked. The first time it was from a prideful position. Now Jesus himself is asking, what do you need? The blind man said to him, I just want to see. Which is another way of saying, I just want to be delivered from the position that I'm in. Which is another way of saying, I want salvation. I want you, Jesus. I want to see you, Jesus. I've heard about you, but I want to experience your power. I have heard about you, but I want to touch you and hug you. I've heard about you, but I want to be a part of your family. See, he don't just want Jesus' stuff. He wants the Savior himself. I want to see Jesus. I want to be able to touch your face, Jesus. Notice what Jesus says, go, your faith has saved you. I didn't know this was even a faith issue. I didn't know that's what he was doing. He said, your faith has opened up your eyes. Your faith has opened up your heart. Your faith has caused you to be delivered. Well, pastor, how does that help me? I'm trying to figure out how do I receive the offering of Jesus in three things we see from Bartimaeus' story. The first thing is he responded. Notice when the text says he called him three times, he called him and he responded. The word response in Christian language means he repented. He repented. He, he, he turned from the position that he was in and he turned facing Jesus. He responded to the call of Jesus. If you want to offer, um, receive the thing that Jesus is offering, you got to respond. You have to move. You have to turn up. You have to turn your position to facing the things of the world to the things of the king. Here's the second thing. He left. He left everything. Notice when the text says he, he took off his cloak and jumped up. Remember, he's a beggar. That's probably the only piece of clothing he has. He takes that off, throws it on the ground because he wants to see Jesus. If you want to receive the thing that Jesus is offering, you got to leave everything. <laughs> you got to leave everything. You got to put everything on the back burner. One of the nicknames that I had in college, because I was not a follower of Jesus in college, one of the nicknames I had was 360. Because the first semester in college, 
I was still old Jerry, right? I'm still, I can't tell y'all what I was doing. Ask me that later. But I was still old Jerry. I was doing some stuff that just wasn't right, right? But the moment I received Christ, I left everything. And my football teammates used to call me 360. I was like, 360? That means I done turned twice. He said, yeah, you didn't just do a 180. You did two spins. I was like, cool. I can't dunk a 360, but I'm willing to be a 360. All right? If you want what Jesus is offering, you got to leave everything. Here's the last thing. Follow. Notice what Bartimaeus does. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak, leaving everything, and he begins to follow Jesus on the road. Remember, the road is to death. He got up and says, I'm following Jesus wherever he goes. Remember, the disciples were behind him like, man, that's not what Bartimaeus did. Bartimaeus like, Jesus, wherever we going, I'm with you. Wherever you got to go, I got to go. Whatever we got to suffer, I'm going to suffer. Whatever we need to break down, I'm going to break down. See, when you follow Jesus, there's nothing that will hold you back from entering to the time and space by which Jesus has called you to. So here's what I want to do as the choir comes back to the stand, as the prayer team comes forward. Maybe there is someone here today who is saying, listen, pastor, I want to receive what Jesus has to offer. I'm willing to respond. I'm willing to leave everything and I'm willing to follow him. Would you allow the prayer team to pray with you? Would you allow us to walk you through the plan of salvation and what it means to follow Jesus? And for some others who are disciples of Jesus, you might be saying my self-interest has outweighed the interests of the king. Can we also pray with you? Can we also help you to rededicate your life to a life of discipleship? Because when you ask Jesus, Jesus, do this for me, the only way Jesus is gonna do it if you are in alignment with his will. Let us pray and worship our God. Thank you again for listening to the Disciple City Church podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom.